You're listening to a message from Southview Church, located right outside of Nashville and Spring Hill, Tennessee. Now here's our featured sermon of the week. Would you stand for the reading of the word? We're going to read from John 12. If you have your Bibles, you can go to John 12. If you have your devices, we're reading from the ESV. ESV. John 12, verse 12. It says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. Can we thank the Lord? because sometimes we don't understand things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and what he had done. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb raised him from the dead and continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing Look, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And he said to him, Sir, we wish to seek Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered him, listen to this. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in the world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. <laughs> and we thank you today that we get to celebrate you together. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Thank you, worship team. Today, the title of my message is called The Art of Losing. How many people love to lose? Raise your hand. We're going to pray for you. <laughs> Kirk does not love to lose. I could tell. The reality is, is none of us love to lose, but there is something about it in scripture. Now, in the natural, I'm a big sports fan. A few years ago in 2008, the Detroit Lions had a winless season. That means they lost 16 games straight. That is pathetic. Not to be outdone. Cleveland was like, hold on a second. Let me, let me do that even better. Cleveland went from a year in 2016, 1 and 15, followed it up with a year of 0 and 16 in 2017. It's almost impossible to lose that badly. There's an art to that. I mean, at some point, you're going to fall into the end zone. Something has got to go your way. Somebody's got to get hurt. This is pathetic. I mean, you guys must be Detroit fans. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry about your life. It's getting better, though. It is getting better. I see hope. The point I'm trying to say is is that it's really difficult to lose. Nobody wants to lose. Here comes Jesus, and he's talking about losing life. There's an art to losing. Jesus wants his church to understand this. In fact, in John 12, I'm going to read it again, but through the message translation, 
It says, listen carefully. Unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground, dead to the world, it never, it is never any more than a grain of wheat. But if it is buried, it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over. In the same way, anyone who holds on to life just as it is, destroys that life. But if you let it go, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. Today, this thing behind me is not a prop. It looks like a casket for a very good reason. Today, we're going to baptize people in water. And Jesus talks about this. This is a sign of death to life. We have to put things to death. Jesus was saying that for many times, we have to let the grain of wheat fall into the soil so that it would die, so that in order it can die, then it can sprout and give forth much life. And for many of us in this room, we're holding on to something that needs to die. This, this whole aspect of dying is crazy, but even, even mind-blowing about that is the fact that Jesus knew that this week he was going to die. You know, none of us wake up and say, okay, I'm going to pass away on Friday. We, we, we don't live our life like that. In fact, when, when, when doctors give a medical diagnosis and say, you have two weeks to live, many times it, it, it can be met with someone going, oh, no, especially if you're, you have a competition in your life, I'm going to outlive that. And people can outlive it then so. But I know this, Jesus, after 33 years of life, he knew that this was the week that he was going to sacrifice himself. Jesus comes from a town called Bethany. And Bethany is significant because this is where some of his best friends live. Lazarus, who he raised from the dead, Mary and Martha, who we talked about a few weeks ago, they live in Bethany and Jesus would hang out with them. In fact, this is the only time in scripture where, 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 where both all like the gospels mention a family by name. And it was somebody that was just Jesus loved them. So Jesus spends time with them. But he's going into Jerusalem, the main Mecca, the, the biggest city. He's going into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. This is a big deal. In fact, many historians believe that there was over 2 million people in the city of Jerusalem at that time. I don't know if you've been to Jerusalem, but that's a lot of people in a very small place. So at any moment, they, they estimate that when Jesus came into town, as we read here in John, that there was probably over a couple hundred thousand people declaring Hosanna. This is a big train. This is a big party. Jesus is coming in and he's, and he's declaring something. Now, incidentally, this is the first time where Jesus actually makes a big deal about his ministry. Up till then, he kept telling people, don't declare. Don't tell anybody I did this. I don't know how you could gain sight and not tell anybody. So here's a blind man, gets his sight back. Of course, he wants to tell everybody. And all the while, those of you know this, there was this group of people called the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were the church. They followed him everywhere. Gave him a hard time. They were the hecklers. Jesus would do a, a, a miracle and they'd say, well, hold on a second. This was done on the Sabbath. You think the person that got healed cared? No. Jesus was always redefining and doing things outside of what the church wanted him to do. Jesus would do something, the church would judge it. Pharisees and Sadducees, they were angry. In fact, they're, they're listed here in John. John makes mentions of them. And they look at each other and say, what are you going to do now? Guy's got a following. Hundreds of thousands of people are declaring him king. Now, incidentally, he rides a colt, a donkey. He rides a donkey into town. That's significant. Fulfills prophecy. But also, 
when he comes in, they declare him king. Now a king, if he's riding a horse, he's declaring war. If he's riding a donkey, he's declaring peace. Now here's the good news. <laughs> Jesus didn't do what they wanted him to do because they really wanted Jesus to upthrow the Roman Empire. I don't know if you know this, but the, but the Jews were, in, they were occupied by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, in, in some ways, put restrictions on what they could do. And so they wanted nothing more than to overthrow the government. The government stinks. We hate the government. Here's a guy that's healing people, and he's saying things that sound a lot like a revolution. Let's get behind him. Let's do this. And listen, let's not give the disciples too much credit. They were a bunch of ragtag, bunch of goofballs. Some of them followed him just because they thought this is going to be a good fight. I want to be part of the crew that upflows the government. And so here they are declaring him the king. The church doesn't like him. The Romans are skeptical. I don't know what's going on with this guy. He hasn't broken any laws yet, but something's not up about him. Something doesn't seem right. And Jesus is riding a donkey declaring peace. Now, they say this to him. They say, Hosanna, which means save now. They're essentially quoting Psalms 118, which says, save us, oh, we pray, oh, Lord. Oh, Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. They throw down palm branches, which signify victory or triumph. They take off their jackets and they throw them down and let the donkey walk all over it. What are they doing? They're declaring him king saying Jesus, and Jesus isn't stopping them. I wonder if Peter and all the crew at a moment said, this is the first time Jesus is actually letting this stuff happen. I think something kind of got excited about them. They probably thought, this is the deal. We are finally going to rule and reign with this dude. Like, this is really happening. Um, you know, because we know that the disciples, they always fought about who's, who's better, who's going to be, you know, who's going to be your best man, all this kind of stuff. So now they're thinking, well, who's going to be the vice president? You know, who's going to be the, who's going to be the officiate? Well, they're starting to think through this because they realize it's happening. People are embracing him. And Jesus has a total different idea for the week ahead. Jesus comes into town. And one of the first things we see is he goes into the temple. Now, interesting enough, Jesus looks around, and then he leaves. I wonder what he's thinking in the moment, because we know he comes back the next day. But Jesus, you know, this is the Jesus that some of you guys really love, right? Because some of you love the gentle Jesus with the, the sheep around his neck, and he's petting things, and he's so nice and kind. And some of you people are a little crazy. You like the Jesus that's kicking over tables and fashioning whips. It's like, come on, Jesus. That's the Jesus I like. Scare us, by the way. Jesus is looking around, and I can't imagine what he's thinking, but maybe he's saying, okay, that table's got to go, that table's got to go, that table's got to go. I'm going to knock that table, I'm going to push that table over, and then I'm going to exit out that way. Because how many know that once you start kicking over tables of people that are making a lot of money in the temple, you're going to anger a lot of people. Jesus went in the next day, and he kicked over the tables, and he made a very profound statement that I believe still applies today for the church. My church shall be called, my, his house, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves. Jesus is not about having any kind of ridicule or anything opposite of what the kingdom looks like in his father's house. At this point, you can imagine the tension in the city is at high alert. Jesus is not only going to take over the government, 
but he's going to take over the church. This is epic. And people get excited and there's tension in the city. Now, Jesus continues throughout the week. There's some discrepancy on exactly what happened on Wednesday. Some people believe this is a side note. Some people believe that Palm Sunday was actually on Monday. Some people believe that kind of makes the whole outline of the, de of the week, fills in Wednesday. However you want to land, Jesus enters Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan. And this is consistent with Exodus 12.3. Why am I telling you this? Because every detail that Jesus did fulfilled every prophecy of him in the Old Testament. Everywhere he walked, he didn't get there early. He didn't get there late. Jesus was always on time. This is the beauty of Jesus. It, it might have felt like to the disciples that he was haphazard. He kind of just walked around, did things. Nobody knew what he was going to do. But Jesus was fulfilling every detail to the T. It's statistically impossible for one person to fulfill that many prophecies in his lifetime. Jesus did it. Jesus then takes his disciples and he says to them, he says, I want you to go ahead and find a place for us to celebrate Passover. There's a whole process in this and they find this place. We call it the upper room. His disciples go up there and they set the table. They're getting ready to do Passover. And little did they know that Jesus was getting ready to lead them in a thing called communion that we observe today that would change the course of history. Jesus, listen to this. They're celebrating Passover in Jerusalem and Jesus, whew, in the process, becomes the Passover lamb. They're missing this. They're not even paying attention. They're trying to figure out who's going to lay next to Jesus. John's, of course, laying his head on him because he's the favorite. Judas is getting ready to have a meeting with the Sanhedrin. He's working out all the deals, how much he's going to get paid. All the while, Jesus is flipping history upside its head. Jesus then begins the process of communion. And this is what I want to do in this moment is I want to take communion with you. So if you don't have one of the sacraments, would you raise your hand, please? Our ushers are going to get them to you. Keep your hand up high, please. I'm going to need mine. I don't know where it went, but thank you. There it is. Keep your hand up until we get it. Can you imagine what it been, must have been like to be in that moment where Jesus takes the bread and he takes the wine Two very basic ingredients to a night like this. And symbolically, he flips these two ingredients and they become a critical part of who we are as a church. I'm going to read this to you and then we're going to partake. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says to the church of Corinth, he says the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup. After supper, saying, this is the cup in the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, we thank you right now for your son, Jesus. We thank you that in 2023, in Spring Hill, we can partake in communion in remembrance of what you did that night that you were betrayed. 
Thank you today that this wafer symbolizes your body that was broken for us. And I today, as we lead together in this moment, we take this and we eat and remember what you've done. Lord, I thank you that this cup of grape juice represents your blood. Your blood that covers our sins from our past, the sins we're currently doing and the sins we will. Lord, I thank you that your blood also covered every sickness and disease. Lord, I thank you that you've nailed it to the cross. That everything, whether it's our sin or whether it's sickness and disease, it will not stop us from seeing you face to face one day. Today, as we drink this, we remember that your blood covers us and it consumes us and it makes us white as snow. We drink this in remembrance of you. And with that, the disciples took communion for the first time. It's interesting, again, as scripture says, they didn't really understand what was going on in the moment. They didn't know that this would be something that we'd be celebrating for thousands of years. They didn't realize that we would put this into our services. We'd call it communion. It would be a holy moment. But here are the disciples, and they're doing this. Now, you got to understand, they were so used to Jesus saying radical things. So for him to say, this is my body and this is my blood, it made sense because Jesus at another time in, in, his, in, in his walk, in his ministry, he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, and everybody around him said, we're out. <laughs> I don't know what you are, vampire or whatever, but we are out. We're not into that kind of religion stuff. Jesus was always flipping things. Why? Because he wanted to get to the root, to the heart. And Jesus would say things that nobody understood at the time because he realized it wasn't for now, it was for eternity. So when he says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies... What he was saying was he wasn't talking to farmers. He was talking to us today. He says, unless you allow the things in your life to die, I can't resurrect it again. Think about resurrection. You can't resurrect something that's already alive. It has to be dead. So today, as this looks like a casket, our desire is that the old nature goes into the water and a new creation comes up. I want you to understand that what's taking place today is significant in eternity. Now, this is an outward expression of an inward confession. Yes. This is really a demonstration of what has already been done intimately with you and Jesus. But how many know that it's not just a one and done deal? Jesus wants us to die to things daily. Come on now. For some of us in this room... Our desires are more strong than Jesus in our life. So there's things within us, like our relationships that have to die. Some of us, it's our career has to die. For some of us, our finances, our love of finances, our consuming mind of our bank account has to die. For some of us, it's the health. How does that work? You gotta trust the Lord with our health. For some of us, 
It's our family. It's our dreams. It's our passions. It's our pursuits. They have to die. How do I know this? Because when they die, Jesus can resurrect something new. And for some of you, hear me, you're dreaming too small. For some of you, your dreams are confining you. Your passions, your pursuits are holding you back. And until you die to them, until you allow them to die in you, Jesus cannot give you a new mandate. I believe this is the, really the call to the church. The church has to die to religion. The church has to die to our processes and our, and, our, and our thesis, our theology, all the things that we hold dear. And we have to come back into relationship with Jesus. We have to understand that it's not about what we want in church, but it's about what he does through us that makes it the church. It's him being the church. We are the church. We don't attend church. For some of us, we've gotten so used to doing the things and Jesus is like, let me ride in on a donkey and let me let you throw your dreams and your passions on the floor and I'll walk all over them. Oh man, Pastor Mark, that doesn't sound good. It's good when you know that his dreams, his passions, his desires are much better than what you could ever lay down. If you follow Jesus for any length of time, you realize this to be true. He always wants what you want, but he wants you to love him more than your wants. Amen. See, things need to die in order for Jesus to res resurrect something new. That's why there's the art of dying. But Jesus was constantly, listen to me, redefining things, recreating things, and rebirthing things. Whoever loses their life gains something so much better. Now, let me go back to my sports analogy because I love sports, Dan. You know that. A couple years ago, my 76ers wasn't a good season, wasn't a good time. It was tanking. We called it the process. We're just going to lose things because there was a reason. Now, some of you don't know this. Hannah, we were talking about this after the first service about her Colts who jeopardize a better draft position because how many know the worse team you are, the higher your draft position is? Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Bear with me. Your draft position allows you to pick the best player in the draft. So if you get the number one, you get to pick whoever you want. So there was a reason to the losing. And nobody likes that. People that follow teams, we hate it. At some point when draft day comes, we celebrate. We got the number one pick. And then we start to cycle all over again. And there we go again. But even sports realizes there's an art to losing. I wonder if we look at it differently because we think of it as me giving something away that I'll never get back. The reason why many of you won't give away your marriage to the Lord is because you're afraid that he will do something that you don't want him to do because instinctively in your heart, you know that God wants to heal you, not your spouse. So you know if you tell God to take over your marriage, he's going to mess with you. So you just rather just get a divorce. Now, we also do that with other things like family. God, I only planned on two kids. Boy and a girl, I'm good. I did my job. Thank you very much. Then all of a sudden, God tugs on your heart. And all of a sudden, you go through something and you realize 
There's something else, but you don't want to surrender that to the Lord. Now, listen, I can't identify with a woman contrary to what our culture tells us. I will never be a woman. And I know what she does in carrying a child is much easier than what I have to do. I don't know what I said. But how many know the beauty of saying yes to the Lord allows you to see the beauty of watching a child grow up that you never would have had? I could go on and on. Whether it's your health, your wealth, whatever it is, Jesus wants to be king of it. He didn't ride into town on a donkey just so people could high-five him and say, great job. Jesus knew full well that by the end of the week, he would be crucified. Here's the mind-boggling thing to me. Jesus did it. No one else knew about it. But Jesus, in his heart, he knew where this was leading to. As everybody was high-fiving him, and they were going, Jesus, Hosanna in the highest, they were celebrating. In his heart, he knew every one of you are going to be saying, crucify, crucify, in just a few short days. His disciples, who were getting excited, they were thinking, this is it. The revolution will be televised. We're doing this. He realized in a few short days, some of them would doubt, some of them would betray, and some of them would deny and every other one of them would hide in fear. Jesus knew this, and he still went to the cross. So here we are, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Can you imagine the weight of every day waking up knowing you are getting ready to experience the most painful death, crucifixion, unbelievable way to die. He was going to be tortured physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Scripture says that he felt a distant connection to God. It's almost like he was, God saw his son with sin and turned away from him. That may have been the strongest, most powerful statement that Jesus had to endure. Jesus did it because he knew ultimately, I'm going to transform history. I came to do what Adam messed up. I have to rewrite history so that in 2023, there would be a bunch of people on 3011 Harrod Drive that would be able to experience my presence freely. Jesus did it for you, and he did it for me. That's why this is called the Super Bowl of Holy Weeks. We, we celebrate this, but, but here's the good news. I know that we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, but we can do this every day because every day he resurrects something new in us. He's always alive. He's full of power, and he's full of promises. Everything he says he will do, he completes it to the T. He's so good. Romans 6, Paul says this, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized unto his death? We were baptized therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, look at this, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. It's the death that allows us to be resurrected into new life. For if we've been united with him in death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in the resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved 
to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. The addiction is dead. The mind process, it's dead. Anxiousness, anxiety, depression, it's dead. The abuse you've experienced, the memories of it that haunt you, it's dead. All of the sin that's been committed against you, all the sin that you've did, all the sin that you will do, guess what? It's been killed and put in the grave. Jesus resurrects and brings freedom for the captive. You are no longer a slave to sin. The only thing that brings you back in is the old nature that tries to creep its ugly head outside the casket. Let me out. Let me And you just slam that shut and say, no, 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 no. That's the old nature. The new nature is me. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I buried that old nature. I put it in the grave. I had to wake up some of you. That's why baptism matters. That's why we do this. That's why we celebrate this. A few short moments, we're going to celebrate people giving their lives. Let me say this to you today, because many times, just like in the first service, we're going to baptize young people. First service, we had little kids up here. And the tendency is to go, oh, isn't that cute? No, let me say this to you. It's a blessing to know Jesus at a young age. Because how many in this room gave your life to Jesus when you were older? Put your hand up if that's you. For those of you that have your hand up, how many of you would say, I wish I would have given my life to Jesus when I was a kid? See, this is the beauty of it. Baptism is for every ethnicity, every age, every background. The only thing that binds us together is Jesus. There was a thing called the mikvah, In Jesus' time. In fact, there were many of them all throughout the towns. These were Jewish ritual baths. If you've been to Israel, you'll see them everywhere. This would commemorate personal transformations and commitments. John the Baptist started, oddly enough, baptism. John the Baptist, he baptized people. In the wilderness, he took what was only done in sacred places, in the mikvah, and he now brought them into the everyday life, the Jordan River. See, just what Jesus did when he died and the veil was torn and he released the Holy of Holies so that everybody can come in, John the Baptist said, everyone that gets baptized in the mikvah, this celebratory bath, guess what? Now anybody can do it and we can do it in the river, we can do it in a church, wherever you need to, to celebrate new life. The water, there's life in the water. Symbolically, this is just regular water. It's not any got some special chemicals in there that makes you sinless. It's just you coming out being renewed. See, mercy stops the penalty of what we all deserve in this room. And grace releases the promise that Jesus came to give us. One last scripture, because I think it's important, Romans 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. This is the best way to die. This is the beauty of death and resurrection. 
Thank you so much for listening to this message. Southview Church is a non-denominational, multi-generational, multicultural community of believers passionately pursuing Jesus, family, freedom, and unity in the body of Christ. If you would like to connect with us, visit us at southview.cc and follow us on Facebook and Instagram.